Hello, this is The Last Defense 2012. These are your hosts, Michael Bolowski and Hanno Navi. Today we're going to be talking about the Boston bombing. Now, some of you are probably asking, why are you covering the Boston bombing almost a month after the fact? Well, uh, first of all, where me and Hanno are both very busy people, uh, Hanul's got his classes and work over in China, and I've got um, work and so on over here. But uh, in any case, we've... Uh, we're going to compare our notes, and I think that one of the advantages of waiting a while to cover something is that you can get the more complete picture. So, And also, just uh, there's more developments. I think there is a new development today, actually. Um, anyway, Hanul, what, what are your initial – what were your initial thoughts about the Boston bombing and, and then and also the latest developments? Honestly, for me, dude, um, it was just another piece of evidence in the long history of United States sponsored, terror- sponsored terrorism and false flag events. You know, it just surprising to me, you know, three, you know, two bombs go off and then like only three people die. And also they say there were about 264 people injured, according to the Wikipedia here. Um, it just seemed like there were a lot of inconsistencies in the story. It seemed like the plot of a bad movie, you know. And then the biggest ticker, which was kind of like what I felt the last time, or rather the first time I ever blogged anything here, it was the ethnicity of the person that was responsible for the attack. Now, uh, according to, like, sources and everything, uh, you had uh, Dozakar Tarznov and Tamerlan Tarznov. These guys were of Chechnyan descent. When I heard their names, I was like, uh, this doesn't sound right. And then when I knew they were Chechnyan, this is just another strategy in the geopolitical game that's getting played against the Russians. It's a Dvidia Imperia, as I always like to say, where you divide and conquer. Anytime you do false flag, it allows for, in the 21st century, a humanitarian intervention. And so whenever you have humanitarian inter- interventions or preemptive strikes, you know, because of false evidence like they did in the Iraq War, or the Second Gulf War, and then you have like a huge list in history of false flag events and sponsored terrorism and sponsored dictatorships coming from the United States, there's it's just no wonder that this is just another piece, another Lego in the big castle. Well, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I agree. I agree. I, I actually pulled up my article for the last defense that I did uh, about eight or so months ago now called The Mechanics of False Flag Terrorism. Mm-hmm. And I want to start um, – for me, I want to start today by going back to this article. This is just what it sounds like, The Mechanics of False Flag Terrorism. Just like when you go to the doctor and you say to him, I've got a fever, I've got a – I'm sneezing, i I'm have, you know, this and that symptoms. And then a doctor pulls out of his chart and he goes, check, 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 check. You have the flu or check, 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 check. You have AIDS. No, just, I'm, I shouldn't joke about that. No, but no. anyway, he, he can look at a list of symptoms and be like, you know, this is what you have. And I think the same thing, uh, 
applies to terrorism. You can look at a, a alleged terrorist attack and you can look at the characteristics and say, check, 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 check. This is a legitimate terrorist attack by sincere rebels against society or whatever. Or you can say, check, 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 check. This is a false flag event run by government, black ops, etc. And there are, this article is basically a blueprint for looking at a random event and looking at the symptoms and saying, this is a false flag or this is a real event. And so before we get into, uh, before we break down what exactly happened in Boston, I'm just going to very briefly and concisely go over some of the primary characteristics to look for in a false flag event. Mm -hmm. Um, Number one is a changing story, and this is a big one for Boston. When the story keeps changing, especially after the initial hours of reporting, that's when you know that something isn't quite right, all right? Um, when you have a suspicious suspect, uh, somebody with intelligence connections, somebody who has been in the case of the Boston bombings, these, these boys were, there were inquiries from the Russian government and uh, about possible links to terrorism. And the whole family is saying that, and, and the Russian government is saying that they've been in contact with the FBI for years and they may have been controlled by the FBI for years. So we'll get more into that later. Um, another one, drills. When you have drills going on of similar events at, at the same time, at the same place, this was, again, definitely applies to the Boston bombing. We'll get into that right away. Uh, dead witnesses. There, there was, I, I won't say a dead witness, but it, yeah, a kind of a dead witness. Um, the, the initial suspect was not these two brothers. It was another guy. And he is now dead. His name was, uh, he's a college kid. I'm looking for his name in the article. We'll get back to that later, but there is a dead person who was initially believed to be the, uh, initial suspect. Hmm. And then, uh, the timing, suspicious timing. Well, I mean, as far as timing goes, I, I guess it, it happened the day of the Boston, uh, Patriots Day, the New England Patriots Day, which is different from the Federal Patriots Day. It also, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to check this one up, but I believe it happened on the anniversary of, I, I think the Patriots Day in New England is yeah, the was, anniversary of one of the Day. initial battles of the uh, Revolutionary War, one of the first skirmishes. Not like a major battle, but one of the first skirmishes that happened. So I'd have to comment on that on a later date or encourage you listeners to look that one up and so yeah those are some of the the characteristics of false flag terror that and again when this first happened my initial reaction was actually that i believed it was a false flag terror attack and people might say well why wouldn't you wait for more information to come out why wouldn't you at least get more of the facts straight i think within five minutes of learning about this bombing I typed into my Facebook that I think this is a false flag. I basically said it was a false flag. I didn't even say I think it was a false flag. And when I say false flag event to the layperson listening, that means a staged event, a fake event. And mm-hmm. the reason why I made that conclusion right away instead of waiting for more information to come out was the drills. And I, I just mentioned drills from this article. The uh, the mechanics of false flag terrorism. By the way, if you 
if you put the mechanics of false flag terrorism into Google, you should get my article. It's the only one on the internet, as far as I know, titled that. Oh yeah, so, I wanted I wanted to uh, mention one thing. They even mm-hmm. on the um, the Boston Globe's Twitter feed, they had um, mm-hmm. they said it was an hour before the actual incident took place. They said that the Boston Globe tweeted that they were going to have drills in response to a bomb threat or uh, you know mm-hmm. a bomb drill. So people were questioning, like, why is this happening right now? Yeah, the the Boston Globe reported that. In addition to Live 15 TV interviewed a, a college track coach, I forgot the college he was from, but you can look up, if you go into YouTube and look up a Live 15 TV college track coach Boston bombing, you'll get this guy basically describing a drill. And what he's describing is people were walking, people were walking around with black bags. There were bomb sniffing dogs. There were guys on the roofs looking down at the finish line before and after the race. And basically they were, people were freaking out. People knew something was up and, and everybody, they were announcing over loudspeakers, be, be calm. This is just a drill. And this is very important because as I detail in my article here, um, on nine 11, there were drills, same time, same place of airplanes hitting buildings, hitting the Pentagon, uh, that's I believe that's ABC News, and I mean it, they're documented drills and by the government anyway. But it's been reported by major uh, news stations on seven seven. The same, the same buses, the same trains at the same time. There were drills for the seven seven bombings in London when those buses and trains blew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was also mainstream news. I believe BBC covered that. Uh, in, in the Sandy Hook shootings and the Aurora shootings over in Colorado, there were also drills of shootings going on at the same locations at the same time. So, and you, you can look at any major terrorist attack, um, that I, that I can think of, I pretty much. And there's always a drill going on at the same time. And that's why I didn't wait to call on my Facebook immediately. I said, I think I, I didn't even say, I think I said, this is a staged event. And sure enough, the more evidence that comes out, the more points to that. So do you, do you have any other comments on that? Oh, I can tell you exactly how I found out about it, which wasn't really a pretty situation. Now, you know, of course they call them drills. I call it choreography. I call it recital before the big performance for, you know, the global elite. But um, the way I found out about it was I got a call early in the morning or I had a message on my phone. Come to find out my friend that lives in Boston actually said, you know, hey, there have been two bombs that went off, you know, right down the block from where I live and things like that. So I'm sitting here like, you know, panicking, going in panic mode and stuff, trying to figure out what's going on. And then in addition to that, she's, basically tweeting me the information or she's uh, sending me the information. And then after that, I hear about, you know, the shootout that happened after they stole the car and then the shootout that happened mm-hmm. near the house. And um, it was basically she was right down the street from where it happened, right before oh, it wow. happened. And so, so that's did she how see I knew anything? About, hmm? mm-hmm. Did she see anything of those shootings? <sighs> She didn't see it specifically when the event occurred, but she was passing through. 
And in addition to mm. that, like she told me about the lockdown that they were having. So she was forced to stay in her house. And on the, in addition to that, they shut down the entire cell phone system until mm-hmm. the curfew was lifted. But yet in a Russia Today article, which kind of pissed me off. And now I'm a little skeptical about um, Russia Today is that they said that there was no lockdown of the cell phones. They said, ah, mm-hmm. oh, some people said there was a shutdown of the cell phones, but it wasn't true. So now it doesn't matter where the media comes from. To me, it kind of broke down my, my, um, my trust in a lot of the media that I hear and that I read about now. Cause specifically my friend told me that they were locking down all cell phones. She couldn't use her cell phone. Hmm. Well, uh, Russia Today, yeah, that's state television. Yeah, you gotta keep that in mind. I know, we- I know our buddy Webster, who used to go on Russia Today all the time. He doesn't trust. He- well, I- he didn't say he doesn't trust them anymore. He doesn't have the same confidence in them as he used to. Uh, I should be careful what I say. I'm- I think I'm applying for a job there, but <laughs> but oh well, they're probably not going to hear this one anyway. Well, uh, I mean, the point is, you know, Russia Today has a lot of great information, and it has, you know, it's a news media channel like anything else. It's going to kind of control the flow of information just like any other news media. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I still think it's a great, you know, it's a great um, mm-hmm. newspaper to read. So it's basically mm-hmm. putting two and two together. The only way you can really yeah. trust news is to kind of put together the sources directly from where they come from. Yeah, that's the only way. I want to talk about those shootouts for a minute here. Um, the first suspect, the older brother, I- I'm sorry, no, the first suspect is dead. Well, let's go to that actually. Um, I got an article here. This is from uh, Infowars.com, but it's also reported at the Boston Globe and other mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of amazing, actually. I was listening to Infowars. I wasn't listening to it live, but when it was recorded, apparently this went on. Uh, internet sleuths, internet uh, kind of experts, uh, people people who know, I guess hackers, I guess you'd call them hackers probably, they got the, the re, uh, how do you say, the photographs from the uh, surveillance cameras and I guess they were picked up by some local media in Boston and apparently the local media didn't even, you know, uh, make a big deal of these photos, but people started sending them to Infowars and Infowars started showing all these, uh, photographs of the drill that we were just talking about. A bunch of guys walking around with bags, black bags specifically, uh, they were confirmed about a half dozen of them were confirmed to be navy seals they have a, have a patch on their uniform that's an insignia for navy seals it's a and they also the showed oh sorry it's an insignia for mm-hmm. the group the craft it's a version mm-hmm. of blackwater it's like an elite group of the navy seals yeah yeah and i'm not even saying they they did the bombing but they were obviously involved in the drill and it also shows the two brothers the how do you say Sarnev? Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Yeah, Sarnov. Sarnev. And they have different color backpacks. Um, and, and the backpacks are still on after the bombs go off. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, how do you say disconnections to the official story? Hmm. But the, the, where I was going with this is that they initially had a suspect, 
Um, I guess he was more under the st- uh, kind, kind of profile of the right winger, uh, American Patriot, sort of Alex Jones type, mm-hmm. this college kid. Um, I'm trying to get his name here. Suni, Sunil Tripathi, 22 year old former Brown University student. They had him at the courthouse. They announced on major TV stations for about two hours that they were going to bring him out at 5 o'clock. This was, all came out about 2 p.m. I think this was the Thursday after the bombing. I want to say Thursday. I'm not sure. It was you know, two or three days after the bombing and another two days before they came out with the brothers. And they said they're going to bring this guy out. He's the suspect. He's the one they're going to roll out and blame everything on. And then at the same time, InfoWars was coming out with these photos, which apparently showed this kid, Sunil Tripathi. Apparently not implicate, apparently these photos did not jive with the story that this kid did it. And so what happened was they called in a bomb squad, a bomb scare at the courthouse, got all the media out of there, and this kid just disappeared. Never heard from again until he was found dead in the one of the Boston rivers, the Providence River, about a week later. Hmm. And I think that this guy was the original targeted patsy, the original Oswald of the Boston bombing. And because of the power of the alternative media, because of the power of the hackers who were able to get these photos out, and if you want to see these photos for yourself – just go to InfoWars, has them all posted. I'll probably link them up with the podcast to make it easier for you guys to find them. But um, they're, they're at InfoWars. If you type in InfoWars photos, surveillance photos, and uh, um, it, that should be all you need to put in. And you'll get all these stories about how these um, photos basically screwed up their original plan to blame this kid. And it also screws up the story with the two brothers because as i was just mentioning they still have the, the two brothers are also in these photos and videos and they they have different color backpacks on the backpacks are still on after the bombs go off so i think the big brother uh surveillance setup that's meant to to uh to catch terrorists and prevent terrorism Actually it's also kind of them. screwing yeah, it's actually working against them because now they can't pull off these false flag events anymore <laughs> without uh, hackers tapping in and getting the truth out. Let me say so. something in a second. I don't know. It just pops up in my head when I hear stuff like this. It's so funny when you have like a megalomaniacal society where you have these elites posting stuff, you know, monitoring people through their their you know their iPhones, the monitoring people through their smartphones, monitoring people through the street cams, and all this stuff. And it doesn't really seem like when all of this is set up that it really works to their benefit. Because Mm -hmm. in the end, it always seems that, you know, something good prevails. The system can always be used Mm -hmm. against them. I think that's our saving Mm -hmm. grace in that. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, the, The surveillance grid, they give us these cell phones so that they can listen to us and and watch us. The 1996 Telecommunications Act mandated by law that all cell phones built after 2001, September. Uh, kind of an ironic time to start doing that, huh? Uh, September much. 2001. But uh, anyway, they made by law 
that all the cell phones can in be be turned on to to listen and watch us at any time. And incidentally, our cell phone cameras are now being used to catch um, you know staged events in in the uh, in the act. Mm-hmm. So. Well, see, that's the thing. When the system gets out of control, it's hard to con- it's hard for them to do anything. It's like you feel like you have this perfect plan. Everything's going to go according. You know, when I look at um, mm-hmm. geopolitics a lot, a lot of times when they create these sponsored terror, you know, terrorist organizations and things like that, and then they set their dogs loose, and then the dogs end up tearing apart a country. They don't realize that. A few years down the road, this same dog is going to come, rabbit in the street, and bite you in the bite you in the ass. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem I have with this whole situation. Now I can go into mm-hmm. this in depth, um, you know, related to you know geopolitics, you know, with with the United States and Russia. So um, I I'll go into that a bit later. Let's um, let's continue with um, this. Now, what what other things? What other telling things did you notice about this incident? Well, the mayor, the mayor of Boston says he had the video. Apparently, they're saying that what some of the surveillance footage does show one of the brothers. I forgot if it was the younger or the older. I think it was the older one placing the the black backpack that eventually one of the black backpacks that eventually blew up. Now, uh, there's a few problems with this. One, the mayor says the video was described to him. So not only are we not allowed to see the video, but the mayor didn't see the video, but he's certain that this is real because the video was described to him, quote-unquote, if anybody believes that. Um, and they're also trying to say – and this is this just gets ridiculous. They're trying to say the other brother, the one with a different – at least one of them had a different color backpack, and they're saying, well, he had a black backpack inside his white black inside his white backpack if anybody believes that so he's got a bomb in a backpack stuffed in another backpack but his brother apparently didn't think to do that so one brother did that and the other brother didn't i, don't know. I think these sense. guys are retarded i think they're just slight pathological liars whatever yeah. conflicting story they can make speaking of conflicting <coughs> reports you can look on the wikipedia which i'm looking at right now you can see the wikipedia part the section is entitled conflicting reports and in this they mention in the New York Post that a suspect, a Saudi Arabian male, was under guard and being questioned at the Boston hospital. And that evening, the police commissioner said that there was no arrest. So then the New York Post also, on April 18th, showed two men and said they were being sought by the authorities. One was a 17-year-old boy and his other, the other person was a track coach. <clears throat> um, the boy turned himself over to the police immediately and was cleared after a 20-minute interview. So it's just like there's a bunch of crazy stories coming out. What other conflicting parts of this story did you see when you were looking at the information when it was released? Well, there's a lot. I want to talk about those shootings with the two brothers. There there were two shootouts, one with the older brother where he was allegedly killed. He probably was killed, but maybe not the way that we were told. Mm-hmm. Um, the police say the brother – the younger brother – ran over the older brother in a car while getting trying to get away from the police. Witnesses say a po- the police ran him over and then shot him, executed him in the street. And the aunt is saying, the aunt uh, of, of the brothers, 
is saying that the naked man, there's a photo going around of the police with a naked guy, um, with handcuffed or taking him to a car. She says that is the older brother and apparently they, they killed him after that or maybe he's still alive and locked up somewhere. Who knows? But, uh, conflicting stories is an understatement. So, and then there's the younger brother's shootout. Now this gets wild too. This guy, and, and again, this gets back to the big brother working against them. Um, the media using high powered cameras that could like zoom in from like way far away caught the firefight, the so-called firefight. I don't know if you call, call it a firefight when only one side has guns, but, uh, the, the kid was hot, the younger brother was hiding in a boat and they're shooting at this boat for like 45 minutes, they say. And people could hear on the police scanners they were complaining that the media was watching. They apparently wanted to kill the kid right then and there. But when the media is watching, they couldn't do it. So what they did was they finally they gave up trying to kill the kid. They had him get out. He he had his hands up. And we're supposed to believe that he shot himself in the throat. Who, who I, I never heard of anybody trying to commit suicide shooting themselves in the throat. And and then we're supposed to believe he shot himself in the throat, even though they now admit he was unarmed. So I guess maybe he grabbed a gun from the police and shot himself in the throat. I, I wait, haven't wait, even wait, heard that you, story. Uh, let me back it up. I'm sorry. I don't mean to butt, butt in or anything like that. But did you see the video footage of the, the whole Boston squad opening fire in, in the area next to the boat near the house? I haven't personally watched it, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, about can you a describe minute it? of police shooting at the boat <laughs> and mm-hmm. like trying to take this guy out. Now I don't know about you, but I don't know if you need a whole firing squad of Boston police, you know, opening fire on one guy who's supposedly a threat. Mm-hmm. Now, um, mm-hmm. let me ask you this. Now, when it comes to this whole situation, what is your opinion of, about the martial law? Me personally. When you shut down an entire city, shut down the cell phones, tell everyone to stay in, and you forcibly remove people from their house, this is just this is a drill. This is just a conditioning. This is a, this is um, getting people accustomed to the treatment of martial law. And you know there were people cheering in the in the streets after the incident had taken place. Oh, we got those bad guys, you know, and it's just like people are just so blind. It's just like sad puppy dogs about to get put into the bur- into the burner, you know. It's it's it boggles me. It boggles me like to know that no matter what, there's always going to be a majority of people who just don't get it. What are yeah, you? Yeah, and I, I posted I posted on the last defense two videos. Um, one of the videos was the, the kids in Boston cheering USA, USA, while the big armored vehicles rolled by down the street. And with that, I posted another video. This was from, um, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, the third, the third, uh, prequel before the original, before the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. And it was right after, and and that's an interesting movie, actually. And I'm not really a fan of Star Wars for the most part, but I, I paid attention to this movie. Um, basically, uh, 
George Lucas complained people couldn't understand the script. The Sith staged a terror attack against the Empire, well, before it was the Empire, and they used that to justify the creation of the Empire. And there's a, there's this amazing scene, and this is what I posted on, on The Last Defense 2012, where they had just been attacked by the supposed rebels or the bad guys, and they said, we need like a new, stronger, unified... Uh, empire intergalactic empire and that that's when like the big you know the music starts and it's they show like the big aircrafts from the original trilogy taken off and stuff and uh, basically everybody's cheering and then one of the one of the woman characters in the film i forgot her title or whatever she says and this is the sound of liberty dying to the sound of cheers and screams of joy I'm paraphrasing, but basically she was commenting on how it was kind of ironic that everybody's cheering and screaming in happiness while Liberty is dying. Yeah, and, wasn't uh, that Queen Amidala? <laughs> Might have been, yeah. So, Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Execute Protocol 66, was it? 66, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's... It's just, it's amazing. Like, when you think about it, if put yourself in the shoes of someone who can socially engineer a society. Now, I had this conversation with someone and I said to myself, if I walked around and I knew I was responsible for the fact that people will stare at their cell phones to play games and look at nonsense on the computer screens and they, um, and their smartphones and things like that, it is amazing the kind of power that you can have over people. It's very scary to think about that. Mm-hmm. It is like keeping people completely blind to what's really happening, and you are able to engineer history, and that there is such a long history of these events happening, and yet people are still blind to what can what is possible. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you um, I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to interject a quote here. Um, the, the people can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. It's easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for a lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. To danger. It works the same way in any country. This was by Jesse Nazi Reich, Reichsmarshal Hermann Goring during the Nuremberg trials. Oh, right, right, right. And I, I think that quote uh, – very much fits into what you were saying. You know, they're create, they're manufacturing the society out of fear and, uh, you know, by scaring people. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the, that's the formula you use. And if you want to have a centralized government, you know, these things are not just going to happen on their own. You have, you can't just wait for an opportunity to take more and more power. If you want a strong central government, oftentimes people have to do it through something that creates patriotism. On, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a terrorist attack or it's a, you know, it's a bombing. It's, um, you know, internal dissent that normally fosters that kind of, you know, camaraderie, especially when it's coming from a federal voice. And think mm-hmm. about it. It's the same thing that they've done throughout the years. The Russians did it, you know, when they had their um, their ban on firearms in Germany and then they used the they used the Poles you know, the Polish communists to um, create the Enabling Act of 1933. This is all common knowledge. When they um, began to um, have the gazettes for um, 
taking away people's firearms and things like that. You know, this is a tried and true formula for criminalizing liberties and taking them away incrementally. And when you look at the timeline of history and you find out how they're able to do this, and you stu- when you do case studies, even when you're doing research, you have to look at case studies, right? Mm-hmm. So you would have to say, okay, in what other situations has this occurred? How can we compare it exactly to whatever we're experiencing here in America or here in Europe or here anywhere else? And then when you find overlapping patterns, that is when you say that it is a false flag or that is when you say that this is a, this is a hostile takeover. And because direct brute force doesn't work anymore, incrementalism is the, is theoretically you know, through the Hegelian dialect, that is the easiest way to take power because you know when you can set up that power and that you're an old man and you realize that you have finally taken away the liberties of people and you can feel alive. You can feel alive when you realize that you finally gain power. <coughs> yeah, it's it's a formula that they stick to and uh, works well. It was working well. Now, these days, I'm not so sure. So... Yeah, Mike, for you, um, what do you think about the power of alternative media and as well as, you know, decentralized social justice? What is your opinion on that? Uh, well, alternative media is becoming the mainstream media as far as I can tell. I will say this. Um, I've got on my Facebook about... Two, uh, I don't know. I, I don't have my friends total. About two hundred friends, give or take, I guess. But and usually when I post about something like uh, saying something is a false flag event, like a big bombing, I get a lot of silence or and or hostility from family and friends. Like, what? How can you say that? How can you say the government might do that? You're being too skeptical. You're being offensive. The, to the victims' families, and I had a couple arguments time, myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I got some of that this time too. But and and maybe this is I know it's a small sample, like two hundred people, but two hundred sixteen. There it is. I know it's a small sample size, but surprisingly, I got a lot of people, including people who I never would have expected to to uh, you know uh, think about this kind of thing. A lot of people are asking me, like, hey, I want to know more, you know, hey. And I even saw them post on their own Facebook, like, you know what, this does sound fishy. This is kind of suspicious. People who never talked to me about this kind of topic were asking me for information about what I thought happened on the Boston bombings. And I think that's because the story is so outrageous. We talked about how uh, ridiculous the shootouts were. We talked about all the surveillance photos we talked about the drill we talked about how they had a suspect and he ended up dead in the river and they went with other suspects um taking everything together no one thing maybe proves it to be an inside job but taken collectively it's pretty damn obvious you know i mean what's the saying if it quacks like a duck if it walks like a duck if it it's a uh, waddles like a duck it's it's probably a duck yeah, yeah. so uh I think that's the case here. And and uh, uh, there's a few other points here I want to make about these brothers, these two brothers that are being blamed for it. Um, this, they were on FBI, CIA watch list for at least three years. This is admitted 
by various mainstream news, CBS, FBI, Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal. They've been, they were being watched by some, the parent, the family says they were working for the FBI, basically, not, not even just being watched by. And they were being inquired about by the Russian government twice, once six months before the bombing and another time about a year ago before they went to Russia to the, the Chechnya. How, how do you say? Chechnya. The, the Chechnya. Right, right. I don't want to get, I don't want to say the wrong one. I know there's, uh, anyway, yeah, my geography kind of stinks. <laughs> okay. So anyway, you, you raise a very interesting point. If, um, if you want me to do this, um, I can break down some of the geopolitical, you know, history of this incident. Okay. Um, yeah, now, go for it. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> um, now this is a somewhat complex story, but follow me if you can. Um, I can talk about the relationship between Russia and the United States and the issues surrounding the Chechnyan, the two Chechnyan wars. Now, mm-hmm. apparently, um, okay, this may take also a little bit of time. I'll try to finish as soon as possible, okay? Mm-hmm. So, there are a few articles that I've read, about five articles, and the first one is entitled Putin and Bush in Common Cause, Russia's View of the Terrorist Threat After September 11th. This was published in the Brookings Institute in 2002 by uh, Fiona Hill. Now, according to this article, what they say is that Putin was actually trying to deal with the, ther- with the terrorist threats that were happening in his country. Now, according to <clears throat> Fiona Hill, there is a difference in the policy, you know, of terrorism between Vladimir Putin <clears throat> and between George Bush during the time of the um, September 11th attacks. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, in September 11th, we have an issue of foreign people coming in and creating a terrorist attack, but because of the places like in Dagestan and um, in Chechnya, you have internal conflicts. So. When we look at this issue, you know, Putin did a lot. He tried to support the war on terrorism. You know, in January 2000, he was um, talking to people about the terrorist camps in Afghanistan. He was trying to talk about the Northern Alliance and its struggle with the Taliban in Afghanistan as well because these are neighboring countries. These are countries in close proximity. Now, there were problems in the beginning of the um, the Bush administration during the beginning of its uh, term. Uh, there were spy scandals. And even to this day, the thing that destroyed the reset between the U.S. administration and the current administration, the Obama regime, as I like to call it, the Obama empire, is that Russia was trying to create a reset but this and um, develop the START Treaty. The START Treaty is basically like a treaty saying that we're going to work on accords of, you know, security joint efforts. But the problem is the United States has been breaking that, and so has the European Union by creating the missile defense shield. So getting back to the original point, when Russia is trying to deal with its own security threats, these are internal as opposed to the United States, which is external. But now, due to the rise in terrorist cells of Wadabi and Salafi Muslims and other radical extremist um, groups, they have to worry about more surveillance. They have to worry about more, you know, ramifications. Now, um, 
Let's see here. They say after the collapse of the USSR, which was one of Russia's biggest problems, and then after that, the Russians um, developed into the Commonwealth of Independent States. What happened is that, um, you know, Putin, as well as other, you know, figureheads, tried to develop good relations with the um, with the local Islamic groups, but there were, you know, in Chechnya, certain Wadabi groups. And these Wadabi groups were very extreme. They were financed and they um, received a lot of their training from Saudi Arabia, of course. You know, of course, Saudi Arabia through its Wadabi and Salafi um, conditioning, you know, mental conditioning. This was a relatively new kind of religion. It started about um, the 1700s. It was kind of like a reformist branch, <clears throat> according to Fiona Hill. Now, when we go back into this, the rebels in Chechnya were basically causing problems for the Russians. It had been said by the Russian government on several occasions that these groups were getting financed by the United States government and the CIA and FBI <clears throat> as a means of keeping Russia unstable. Now, our friend uh, Webster, you know, Dr. Webster Griffin Tarpley goes into this in great detail in his article, Russians Blast U.S.-U.K. Sponsor of Chechnyan Terror. <clears throat> and in this article, he talks about, you know, the different relationships that um, the United States has had to these Russian Chechens. And um, he was saying that um, Vladimir Putin has several times blasted the United States government for doing this publicly. And he's been doing it obviously through like certain, um, um, internet channels. He's been doing it through, let me see, KMN News. And several of their, um, publications have, you know, documented what he said. So, I can go over a few of those points. First off, we have one of the quotes that, you know, Vladimir Putin said. He said, Point blank. Um, on the other hand, the intelligence services and the military, who have who have not abandoned their Cold War prejudices, in Putin's word, entertain contacts with those the international press calls the rebels. Why are those who emulate Bin Laden's uh, called terrorists and the people who kill children rebels? Where's the logic? What he's doing is he's referring to a tragedy that happened in the um, in uh, Beslan, North Ossetia which was where there was a school that was taken over and um, many, many children died. Half of the deaths that occurred during that terrorist attack were children. And it was a very, very sad, dangerous situation for a lot of people. But in the international news, it's not looked at as, oh my God, these are terrorists. It's looked at as, oh my God, the Russians oppress their people and this is only a response for what happened. So imagine if we look at U.S. foreign policy and then we begin to think to ourselves, okay, if September 11th, if we analyzed it the same way, oh, then September 11th happened because of U.S. foreign policy and they got what, you know, it's not fair to say they get what they deserve. It's not the policy <clears throat> of a lot of the people who are trying to work hard to preserve the American system or the Russian system. Now, to go on to another note, we have to think about some of the issues that occur with the security in um, in Russia. Now, the way that the Russians really responded to the um, 
to the terrorist attack in uh, Beslan was different than the way that the United States responded to the attacks in September 11th. In 2011, what happened is that oftentimes they would just ratchet up more and more and more and more and more security measures until we get the TSA, until we get the Patriot Act and all of these other things. Whereas Putin's government was more lax with the response towards the, um, towards the Beslan North Austin um, terrorist attack. There were less restrictions placed upon the people. Of course, yes, they're going to monitor the airports, but they're not necessarily taking such extreme measures to monitor their people. Now, how does, how does this come back to the brothers, the Tarasinov brothers? Now, apparently, let's say, for instance, this was a legitimate attack carried out by two ethnic Chechnyans. Number one, there has already been a statement released by the president of um, the, you know, the Chechen Republic. He has said, these people do not represent who we are. I can actually point to the specific quote that he said. He says here, any attempt to make a link between the Chechnyans and the, and the Sarnovs, if they are guilty, is in vain. They grew up in the U.S. Their views and beliefs were formed there. The root of evil must be searched for in America. The world must battle with terrorism. We know this better than anyone. We wish to recover, I mean, we wish recovery to all of the victims and share America's feelings of sorrow. So this is the Chechnyan government's official response. And this was written on an Instagram. This, you, you can find this on Wikipedia. Even the, even the Mujahideen of the Caucasus Emirate province of Dagestan, which is apparently where they were connected, um, this is a Caucasian Islamic organization in both Chechnya and Dagestan. They denied any link, and they said that they were at war with Russia, not the United States. Um, so these are some things we have to think about. How is the rest of the world reacting to the situation? How is the rest of the world releasing statements? Vladimir Putin gave his condolences. He even said in an article that he wanted closer rapport with the United States and the European Union on issues of terrorism because they are mutual enemies. If you deal with extremist groups, extremist groups in Chechnya, not the Chechnyans, and that they're exp- you know they're um, exporting terrorism to different countries, it would behoove the United States government to work with this country. But apparently that's not what they're doing, and that's why Vladimir Putin was like, okay, well, if you're not going to do that, then these terrorist attacks will happen, because we've been telling you for the past few years that you should be looking out for the Sarinov's brothers, and that they are being monitored by the FBI. There were two occasions where that took place, and they did nothing. The United States did nothing. They just watched it happen. So when we look at situations like this with the Sarinov brothers, where the FBI, CIA, whoever, you know, alphabet soup companies you want to talk about, they monitor these brothers and do nothing. And then during the Benghazi Gate scandal, they monitor what happens in in the embassy and do nothing, and they order a stand down. When NORAD was listening to the planes coming closer and closer and closer to the September 11th attack, you know, uh, the World Trade Center buildings in the September 11th attack, they ordered a stand down. So there's a stand down, stand down, stand down every single time that this situation occurs. So what do you think about that? Uh, do, do you think that these brothers could have been um, 
like sort of double agents because we we know for a fact that they were being monitored by by the FBI. Uh, the the family thinks they're working for the FBI. The the Russian government thinks that they were working for terrorists. Um, it, it all it sounds very confusing to me. And do, do you think that they could have been like sort of double agents where? They were working for the U.S., but they were like pretending to be terrorists over in Russia, and that's why we're getting all these conflicting reports. It's possible. And I mean, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the articles mentioned, it says that there's been an explicit link made between fighters in Chechnya and Al Qaeda. So they could have been working for, you know, Al Qaeda, which is what they even mention here. It's a mixture of Arabs, Pakistanis, and Chechnyans. They could be affiliated mm-hmm. with any branch of Al Qaeda. Now, um, it, you know, it, it just creates a lot of confusion considering that it is a very decentralized uh, terrorist organization and that there is and the possibility that they could come from or they could have their financing from anybody. And and what it does is if you have them working as double agents, you know, supposedly to, say, infiltrate one of these Chechnyan terror groups, um, it provides plausible cover so that if you st- if you frame them frame them for the Boston bombing, the mainstream media can say, "Hey, look, they were terrorists because they were, you know, with these with these terrorist groups in Chechnya, even if they weren't weren't actually trying to join them, but they were just trying to uh, to, to infiltrate them." And, and you can relate this to to the Oklahoma City bombings when I, I believe um, it, it came out that uh, T- Timothy McVeigh. Was infiltrating uh, uh, militia groups, right wing, you know, violent militia groups, and he ba- basically that provided cover for him to be a patsy because they could say, "Hey, look, he was this, you know, violent extremist." When actually he was working for the government, but he was, you know, he had to participate in these groups for his cover. So it, it gets very complex and and very, it's like something out of a Hollywood movie. And but uh, anyway, I'm just I'm trying to think of like how these boys were set up, and I do believe they were set up. I I, I firmly believe that. So. Well, let's look at a case study. Let's check out something. Now, I was looking at one thing about um, what occurred in <clears throat> Iran, and this was happening around 2007. Uh, <clears throat> a London ter- uh, a London Telegraph article in February 2007 written by William Lowther and Colin Freeman. It was entitled U.S. Funds Terror Groups to Sow Chaos in Iran. So fairly blunt and obvious statement about what happens in Middle Eastern policy. Now, the problem is this. When you finance a terrorist organization, the problem is that they don't necessarily share the same goals as the United States. <clears throat> there was a specifically documented uh, case about that. And um, let me see if I can find it. What they're well, saying is basically case, like whenever... Whenever you finance like uh, the PKK, you know the Kurdish, you know Kurdistan Workers Party, you know which is outlawed in Turkey. Whenever you finance uh, the Mujahideen Al Khalak, whenever you finance the Mujahideen, whenever you finance Al Qaeda, whenever you finance um, Al Nus, you know Al Nusra or anything Al Shabab, 
you know, to create, you know, to destabilize a country. It never works out the way you want it to. It's like someone who just sets a fire to a building and just runs away in fear. And that is exactly mm-hmm. what U.S. foreign policy has been since Spanish-American War, since mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two, setting off all these false flags. It becomes a situation you can't control. So even if <clears throat> it doesn't matter if Zarnov brothers are getting their financing from the United States, they'll take that money and they'll use it on someone else. Mm-hmm. And with this situation that happened in like um, the Chechnya wars, there was one person that was um, let me see what his name is. <clears throat> um, there was one Chechnya. Um, there were two Chechnya people, Bayasov and uh, Katab. They were actually receiving grants, scholarships. They were receiving money to live in the United States. You know, during their reign, during the Chechnya wars. So it's like you finance somebody, you don't know how predictable this person is, you don't know who they're going to align themselves with, and on top of that, they have their own aims. Now imagine if you're doing stuff with like the mafia. Do you do a deal with the mafia? I'd ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, if some mafia is very intimidating, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, they'll. <clears throat> They'll burn house. They'll burn your house down if you don't pay. If you don't pay up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine. Okay, I need to. Um, I need to say, for instance, kill someone. So I go to the mafia. Now, what happens if I don't pay up? What happens if the mafia has their own goals, their own aims? Do you think the situation is really in control? Mm, I would presume not. So, so uh, that, that's, I mean, where, yeah, that's the situation that we run into whenever we deal with these types of um, political situations. You finance the Tsarnovs, <clears throat> you you monitor them for you know five years, and then all of a sudden they do something that goes against your policy. But as they said, never you know never let a good catastrophe go to waste. Who was it that said that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that was that Brzezinski, or was that? Uh... Oh no! Wait, that was the the White House chief of staff, Rob Emanuel, the the mayor of Chicago now. Yeah. Yep. Interesting That's exactly character. what happened. So whenever they know that these types of things will benefit them, they'll just watch and watch them happen. So if Ron Emanuel is coming out and saying these types of things, and people are just blindly going along with the rest of their lives, not looking at these small things that they can find with a few clicks. And a few notes typed into their um, their Google search or whatever. These are the things we need to pay attention to when we look at foreign policy and domestic policy. If Ron Emanuel, you know, mayor of Chicago, can say whatever he wants, if um, Dick Cheney can blow someone's face off and not get any trouble for it, you know, if um, <clears throat> you know Hillary Clinton can rejoice when Libya, you know, goes up in flames and Gaddafi's killed. You know, who's paying attention? Is anybody listening when the real information is getting exposed from the people doing the stuff? That's just my question. Yeah, well, I think that, um, 
I don't know. I, I, I'm, I wonder if these boys really did it though. I, I don't, I, I get what you're saying though. Like they're not going to let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, yeah, I, I just, um, mm-hmm. I don't think they did it though. But I think that they're definitely being framed for it and they're not going to let this crisis go to waste. Of course, of so. course. Now I would ask you this, like, <clears throat> legitimate or not? This is the connection they have with the Chechnyans. And of course, this is a very geopolitical, geopolitically strategic move. Now, what do you think the United States has to gain from declaring that the suspects of this crime were two ethnic Chechnyans? Uh, that's a tough question. I know Chechnya is where basically like I've heard that the U.S. I've heard allegations that the U.S. is funding terrorism in Chechnya to destabilize Russia and the Caucasus region. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Sybil Edmonds, who who works with our frequent guest James Corbett, she, Sybil Edmonds is of BoilingFrogsPost.com, and she she's famous for she was an FBI translator, and she said. After 9-11, quote, the, the FBI was working with Al-Qaeda up to the day of 9-11. She said that on the radio. She broke a ga- federal gag order to say that. Mm-hmm. So, But um, uh, Webster Tarpley thinks that she's actually putting out disinformation and that she might, you know, have her own motives or be controlled by somebody. That, th- that gets complicated, and now I'm... <laughs> now, now I'm making connections to, between... Uh, guests that we've had on our show and I don't I don't want to you know I I don't know how much that our guests listen to our show but I don't want to cause it you know too much drama between them so well yeah I mean but I mean she has at least a point you know um, I was reading that John Pike was even talking about this John Pike is someone that's a member of the global security think tank in Washington he literally quoted in this article he was like the activities of the ethnic groups have hotted up over the last two years, and it would be a scandal if that was not at least in part the result of CIA activity. And what he's talking about, he's talking about the PKK Kurdistan Workers Party um, and the um, you know different factions that are operating inside Iran to destabilize the region. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. his comment. Well, well, what what Sybil Edmonds was saying was that, and this is a theory. She wasn't really. This was her theory, and that's fair. I mean, I, I put out theories all the time. There's nothing wrong with putting out a theory. Um, she was saying that she thought maybe the U.S. and NATO would use the terrorists that they're funding and arming in Chechnya to sort of blackmail or or bribe Russia into letting them attack Syria. Like, they would have an agreement, like, okay, we'll stop bothering you in Chechnya, we'll stop funding these terrorists, you let us attack Syria. That that was her theory. She's not, she, just to be clear, this is not what she's saying. She is not claiming she has proof of this. Um, uh, and, and who knows, may, maybe it is possible. Even Webster sort of acknowledged, like, he doesn't think that, he doesn't think it's true. I don't, I don't know that she's specifically putting out disinformation. She might just, um, she might just be wrong. But I don't know. Um, there, but yeah, as far as who gains, who benefits, Quibono, uh, 
domestically, the answers are very obvious. The, the police state, the loss of civil liberties, the increasing TSA presence on the streets, the loss of posse comitatus, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm saying it right. Yeah, posse comitatus. Uh, yeah, right, right. That that keeps U.S. troops from operating in inside the U.S. Just like it, just like they would say in the Roman Empire, the Roman troops could not go into Rome. But now, now you saw the photos and videos of police, um, not police, of military in Boston. And so the domestic, the domestic, uh, who benefits is very obvious. The, the police state benefits, and the the move to demonize people who love liberty, freedom benefits. Right. The, internationally, that's where it gets more complicated, and I think that's why it's great that you uh, talked a lot about Chechnya and the Caucasus in that region, because um, that's where it gets more complicated and confusing. Yeah, I wanted to make a note of something. Like, when you look at the Caucasus region, okay, now, we've had wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which basically surround Iran. Turkey has been aligned with uh, NATO. They are a member of the NATO, you know, the NATO uh, coalition of um, nations. Then you have Ukraine, Belarus. I mean, you have Ukraine, you know, which is pretty much aligned with the West as well. You have Belarus, you have, which is pretty much aligned with Moscow, who is also a member of the CSTO. Now, when we look at the area of Chechnya, it's next door to Georgia, which has also fought a war, you know, a several-day war with um, with the Russians, who has also been aligned with the West as well. So if you get a hotbed of political influence coming from the Chechnyan government and um, a bid to fight terrorism in that region, not only does that seal Iran in, pretty much, but it also allows for them to go into one of the poorer regions of of Russia and to further destabilize the area. It's what we call divide and conquer. So when you look at this chessboard, this big chess piece is, you know, essentially, you know, Chechnya. Chechnya is nothing but a pawn. Is gonna, they're going to try to use Chechnya as a pawn in this geopolitical game, which has been going on for way too long, way, way, way too long. You know, it was so easy for us to align with the Russians during, you know, World War II, and it just seemed like everything was great. No one cared. We had people like Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and who was the other guy, Eisenhower, <clears throat> sitting together, drinking tea, talking about politics, and now it just seems like, no, we're going to go back to this Cold War game, which has not ended since the end of World War Two. It's just all strategy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, I think they always need um, a boogeyman, you know, somebody to scare us with. Yeah, you, um, need, a fa- you need a face to attack. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I got another piece of information that I forgot to go over about these two brothers. Um, apparently they attended a school in uh, Georgia. In, in Georgia. Uh, uh the Russian a Russian newspaper reported this. The school is owned by Bazignu Brzezinski, the uh, net, how do you say the uh, public not public relations, the for, foreign advisor to Jimmy Carter 
and also he's just like a general kind of how do you say big wig in Washington and Wall Street and just one of the main players. You he's know, the mad scientist the rock- of geopolitics with his book, The right, Grand right. Chessboard. I remember him. And this school was a CIA owned school, basically. Uh, and this is reported by Wayne Madison, a CIA officer turned uh, journalist. And basically, this school was meant to like uh, basically teach people how how to de- destabilize Russia's North Caucasus region. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is, um, reported by a Russian newspaper and, uh, and their intelligence agencies. And I'll tell you one thing, man, you know, even Brzezinski, you know, basically, you know, banters on and on about it, but getting control of Central Asia is very pivotal and very strategic. What it does is it cuts off reserves that Russia can send to the European Union. It gives them more reserves because that area is rich in natural gas. Mm-hmm. Now you have companies like Gazprom, you have companies that are operating inside of Russia that, you know, work collectively with the CSTO nations. Mm-hmm. And they're actually now talking about the Eurasian Union. And in addition to that, Russia is another one of the many countries getting attacked that want to use a different currency to trade fossil fuels. They want to switch to the euro. It's possible that they'll do that. You know, India is also shifting to gold. We have China selling things in yuan and then we have brazil also jumping on the bandwagon so anything that mm-hmm. destabilizes or disrupts the hegemony of the petrodollar is seen as a threat mm-hmm. so now they have to act quickly before anything happens so i think it's important for people to start researching the petrodollar and that in the end it's the oil stupid that's exactly what people tell you when they deal with geopolitics. It's the oil. He who controls the oil controls the world. Now, um, I wanted to add this other tidbit. Now, there was uh, recently something that came out. It came out today. Uh, it's a CBS article that says immigration bill includes measure inspired by Boston bombing. And so the amendment, it says, which is passed out of a committee unanimously on Tuesday, makes monitoring requirements on foreign students more stringent, requiring the Department of Homeland Security to implement the real-time transmission of student visa information to databases used by U.S. Customs and Border Protection across the country. So what do you think are the ramifications of this particular situation? Uh, well, as I mentioned, the police state at home and, and geopolitics abroad, you know, uh, probably power grabs abroad. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's going to be ramifications for everybody and certainly on students that, uh, try to apply for, try to move into the states or overseas. And, and it's a real shame because the story is totally bogus as we just broke down. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. If you, um, I wanted to say another thing, like if you access the, uh, bill text for the 111th Congress, you can look up Senate Bill 3327. That's the Terrorist Expatriation Act. Um, I'm not sure if this act has been killed or not, but it is essentially an act that, um, 
removes people of their citizenship if they're suspected of being a terrorist. I think that this is some kind of continuity of government issue happening with um, some of the bills and the legislation. If they pass this bill to monitor people, then without pretext, without much pretext, they can say this person is a terrorist. We've been monitoring them through legal legislation, you know, because of this Boston incident. You know, when we look at the Saranovs, they grew up in the United States. They were of Chechnyan descent, but they grew up in the U.S. Nevertheless, if it's if it comes to it, like they can monitor people who have grown up in the U.S. even though they're from other ethnic you know ethnicities anyway, and then boom, you're suspected of being a terrorist. You're out of the country. Yeah, talk about a blacklist, huh? <laughs> of course. Yeah. There's already a no-fly uh, list. Why not make a blacklist? Why not make an execution list? You know, Obama has his kill list Tuesdays. He sits around, eats popcorn, and decides who he's going to bomb with a drone. <laughs> I hope he doesn't bomb me. I know they got drones flying this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got another piece of intel here. This yeah. is actually speculation, but it's quite... Quite interesting speculation in any case. Um, Family Guy, the popular animation show by Fox TV and I think Cartoon Network was the last TV station to run it. I like Family Guy. I think it's a funny show, but I'm not a fan of their creators these days. They ran an episode. It I don't know when it originally aired, but it last aired two weeks before the Boston bombing. And... The episode, I forgot the name of it, it depicts the Boston Marathon, two bombs being set off by a cell phone by Peter, the the big fat guy, uh, blowing up a bunch of uh, runners at the finish of the Boston Marathon. And the the theme of the episode is that um, uh, patriots are going to be working with Al-Qaeda. So, and again, if you look at the... If you look at the first suspect, not the brothers, but the first one, he was supposed to be like the 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 patriot, the you know, that that was the original Patsy before they had to go to plan B or plan C, who know who knows what's going on. But it, I mean that fits the narrative of this episode of Family Guy and you got to wonder how do you have an episode of Family Guy he, he Peter actually puts into his cell phone. He's dialing a number. He's he's not doing it on purpose, but he dials a number, and two bombs go off at the end of the uh, Boston Marathon. And this it's not new that a uh, popular television would put a terror plot into its episode right before an event. Uh, six months before nine eleven, uh, the spinoff of um, of. Uh, what was it called? Simpsons? I'm drawing a blank here. The X Files. No, or Simpsons too. Yeah, they had a 9/11 spoof where where at least the Simpson held up that magazine cover. It was nine dollar and eleven cents, and it showed the airplane flying into the t- towers. Yeah, that that's another one. But I was gonna say the spinoff of the X Files, the Lone Gunman. The first episode, the pilot episode. I'm gonna see if I can real quickly bring up the synopsis for it right now, but I'm going to describe it anyway. Uh, the pilot episode depicted the government hijacks by remote control to commercial or a commercial airliner and tries to fly it into the World Trade Center. 
to blame uh, extremists from the Middle East to start war in the Middle East. And I am not describing 9-11. I am not describing a conspiracy about 9-11, although I may as well be. Uh, what I'm describing is the official plot of this episode, which the producer of the show later told Alex Jones was given to him by the CIA. They, the CIA came to him and said, you're going to do this episode. And this was about six months before 9-11. And that, that's one of the most extreme examples of popular culture, uh, media predicting an event. But, Anyway, this, this kind of thing happens, and I encourage people to watch this episode. It's called The Lone Gunman. That's the name of the show. Pilot episode predicts 9-11. You can watch it, and it's very, uh, very, very, very close to the real thing. In fact, um, I think that's pretty much it. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can't get much closer to the plot than that, so... I encourage people to watch that, and uh, you will be shocked. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, man, it's a it's a mad, mad, mad world that we live in. So I can definitely say to myself, <sighs> keep watching the skies, man. And there's mm -hmm. no telling because there's just so much craziness going on. We have to keep up with everything. So to all of our listeners, you know, I apologize for the lengthy delay in getting this out here, but. As this situation develops, it's, <clears throat> there's a lot to pay attention to. There's a history behind every event that we see that people need to know about. You know, <clears throat> when um, when a terrorist attack happens, you know, somewhere, no one knows where Chechnya is. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people are having trouble putting Libya on the map. A lot of people don't even know the difference between Shia and Sunni. A lot of people don't understand the origins of Wadabi, you know, or Salafi Muslims. They don't understand that, you know, Iran is not full of, Iran is not an Arab country, it is a, it is a Persian country. So, we have to start understanding before you say, I hate them, you know, them dang on, you know, Muslims and stuff like that, them Muslims, get on my nerves, freedom, and stuff like that, you need to start saying, okay, Identify the people, understand the differences, understand the country, understand the relationship each country has to each other. Saudi Arabia and Iran don't get along. Iraq and Saudi, Iraq and Iran didn't get along. You know, where are the origins and the roots of these issues? It's important to study because that way you have a clear understanding of the context of these terrorist attacks. It's not a bunch of Muslims who hate freedom. You have to understand that when you deal with one country, this country is sponsored by the United States, another country is sponsored by the Russians, another country is sponsored by the Chinese. It's all got to deal with context. And if we don't have that context, it'll be difficult to really ascertain the relevance of these attacks. So that's all. I've ranted enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to make one more closing comment too. I got one of the criticisms I get from people who who say I shouldn't talk about false flag terror. I shouldn't accuse the government of these outrageous conspiracy theories. Um, well, first first of all, uh, journalism's not a popularity contest. 
it, it doesn't win friend. Well, sometimes it does, but for the with the general public, it doesn't win friends to talk about these kind of things. It certainly doesn't help uh, get a job in mainstream media, and so, uh, so it's not a popularity contest. It's about telling the truth. And to those people who say, "Well, if if this was true, the New York Times would be all over it," or "If this was true, uh, such and such media would be all over it," uh, I look up any chart for media ownership. In fact, I'm going to try it right now. I'm, I'm got my Google in. I'm going to put in media ownership chart. And uh, I see, I got a couple right here now. And if you pull up any of these, right, you'll see at the, t- it's kind of like a family tree at the, you know, you got your grandkids at the bottom, there's a whole bunch of them, and at the top you got your, your great grandparents and so on. There's only a handful, I'm looking at one right now, there's five at the top of the tree. Disney, Viacom, AOL, News Corp, Clear Channel. And then all the other, it branches down and there's like hundreds of like smaller, um, uh, media, you know. And everybody just assumes that, like, you know, their favorite media must be unique and individual from the system. And some of it, you know, might be true. Some of it might not be true. But most of it, the vast majority of media is controlled. All right. So, uh, it, for example, NPR is a popular one because people think, well, it's public radio. How could it possibly be controlled by the corporations? Well, uh, big, big foundations can donate to, to NPR just, just the same way that you or I could. So if you go to sourcewatch.com and type in NPR, you will find out that they are very much establishment, uh, just in the same way that, uh, Coke or Pepsi or Burger King or McDonald's is a mainstream uh, fast food. You could say make similar statements about NPR, even though it presents itself as alternative media. And I have seen totally decent news reports out of NPR, so I'm not saying everything they report is bad. But you have you have to know who's paying the bills at these media, yeah, and, totally and I and I think the same. The same applies to well to us. Uh, well, we're not making any money right now, so you don't have to worry about us. But uh, the same applies to the various guests that we have on our show, and uh, and and I, I I talked a little bit this episode about um, uh, Sybil Edmonds uh, as sort of vague accusation from one of our other guests, Webster Tarpley. Uh, he did, I, I won't say he outright accused her of being an agent, of, so to speak, but sort of implied anyway. And she works with another one of our popular guests, James Corbett, and another potential guest that we keep talking about getting on, uh, Eric Dreitzer. So uh, I don't mean to stir up controversy among our friends, but I would like to iron this stuff out and figure out what's really going on. So... Well, anyway, yeah. just something to think about. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the fight for this, you know, there's going to be always some incongruencies, some inconsistencies with what one guest says and another. They're going to have conflicting views on who's responsible. But in the end, it's like we got to get this information out there. I say that as often as I can whenever we have these podcasts and whatnot. But it's ultra important for that to happen. 
So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. All right, well, I guess that concludes our broadcast day. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back on, hopefully, in days, not weeks, to talk about Syria and relate that to Benghazi. And as always, Hanul, I hope, I hope that you can join me for that. Um, you know, we, I, I know you talked a little bit about Benghazi today. And, uh, in, in any case, um, you'll be hearing from one of us or both of us in the near future. Okay. So stay tuned. Yeah, we do also hope to have some extra special guests. <clears throat> you also mentioned um, Eric Dreitzer from uh, StopImperialism.org. We want to get on some people from the United Front Against Austerity, and we'd like mm-hmm. to get on some other guests. Um, hopefully, we, hopefully we can work on that, see how that goes, but we want to just keep them coming, keep them coming, you know? So mm-hmm. thanks again for listening to us. Um, this is The Last Defense. We are signing off. Take care. Thank you. Okay.